murders six years apart that turned into cold cases. What nobody knew at the time was that the Heather Wilms 2005 murder case and the Esmeralda Herrera murder case in 2011 had one thing in common. Both victims were friends with a man named Jose Valdomero Flores. This is South Texas Crime Stories, a deadly friendship. Heather Ann Wilms was enjoying life. She graduated from high school in 2001 and had attended college at San Antonio College and Texas Lutheran University. She had five siblings and was well admired by many friends, including a friend named Jose Baldomero Flores, who she and her family called Joe. Heather and Jose met at O'Connor High School and had been friends since. Oftentimes, she would invite him over to her family's house for dinner and to hang out. On February 21st, 2005, Heather was supposed to work, but didn't show up. Her friends and family tried calling her, but no answer. It wasn't long that Heather was found. A tragic day her stepmother, Mary Ann Wilms, spoke about in court. Her friends were looking for her because she didn't show up to work or took me to the outdoors, and they called us worried. Her dad was there with her friends. When they found her, he called and said, it's bad. <coughs> it's dead. Heather had been found in the bedroom of her Leon Valley apartment. She'd been raped and strangled. Everyone who knew her was shocked of her murder. Who would do something like this to her? Police began their investigation and questioned everyone, but no arrests were made, and eventually the case went cold. Six years later, on March 2, 2011, San Antonio firefighters responded to an apartment fire, but inside they found the body of a woman. That woman was 30-year-old Esmeralda Herrera. She had been tied up, raped, beaten, and strangled. The fire intentionally set to destroy evidence, but not all the evidence was destroyed. According to an affidavit, DNA was left on a beer can in the kitchen, along with hairs and fibers and a bloody shoe print. Police soon found out that throughout the day, Esmeralda had been talking on and off with one person, a friend named Jose Baldomero Flores. Another friend of Esmeralda's later told police that she had known Jose for about a year, and the day before she was killed, she had told that friend that Jose would be coming over to visit. Police now had a potential suspect in Esmeralda's murder, and six weeks later, Jose was charged. But he didn't stay in jail long and was actually released just a month later, the district attorney's office saying they needed more concrete evidence to indict him. The waiting game began, and it would be five years before an arrest was made, but this time, with the help of the Texas Rangers, Flores was arrested and charged not just with Esmeralda's murder, but with the murder of Heather Wilms. Two families now bonded over the crimes of one individual, both their daughters knew and called a friend. But they would have to wait again, this time for justice to be served, and that came in the summer of 2022. Just cry and pain. 
we play at Heather's funeral, which no marriage you'd ever have to plan. Your child's a funeral. It is devastating. Every fiber of my being wants you to suffer and live in fear, just as my Heather did, just as Esmeralda did. So that was the stepmother and mother of Heather Wilms. They spoke in court in July after Jose Flores was sentenced. Seeing that and hearing that grief was so overwhelming. Well, especially to know that like your daughter's friend is the one who did this to her. That's got to be just another stab in the back. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that they were just so angry and hurt. It was more like I felt like like you said, that they were stabbed in the back. Like, okay, yes, their daughter's was their daughter was killed in a horrible way, but then to find out later it was somebody she trusted and she knew that's got to be even harder for the families. Especially, we had mentioned, he came over to their house for dinners and to hang out with their family. This is someone that they knew too, that they welcomed into their secure inner circle and... He did this to their daughter, her, his friend. It just it, it doesn't make any sense. So I want to go a little bit over more of the details on how they were able to finally charge because he was arrested, he was detained, he was actually questioned after Heather was murdered in 2005 because he was a friend of hers, but there was nothing that came of that question, I'm assuming, because they didn't even arrest him then. But we later find out there was DNA in this case. There was DNA on the beer can. There was also DNA found on their bodies, on both of their bodies. And that's how they were able to link these two cases and ultimately tie it back to Jose Flores. That just goes to show. So last season when we talked to Detective Duke with SAPD, you don't get away with everything every time. You're gonna mess up and law enforcement is going to find you. Whoever you are, no matter how long it takes, they're gonna find you, you're not gonna get away with it. Yeah, and this was 2005 and then again in 2011. So I found it really interesting that in itself, that time frame, one murder then, one mur murder later. So we spoke with forensic psychologist, Dr. John Delatore, who's joined us here before. We asked him about his overall thoughts about Jose Flores, and it was really interesting, Lee, what he had to say. When I first learned about this case was that this was someone who I think believed himself to be involved in relationships with these two women, that perhaps wasn't in reality. And because it wasn't real, because it wasn't an actual relationship that he thought it was in his head, it can it, it turned violent and it turned aggressive and, and ended up leading to the deaths of these two women. Yeah, you never think of it that way because, you know, he's saying he was trying to probably be more with these women and they just saw him as just a friend. And that probably didn't lead to what he wanted, which made him um, become violent. Now, this is just his assessment from, you know, reading the story. He didn't analyze or speak with Flores at any time as part of this case. Um, but that was an interesting theory that he had. Yeah, it's it's almost like that. That rejection he felt is maybe what compelled him to do this because he had that relationship with them. In his mind, though, it was something deeper. Oh, well, you're inviting me over. Oh, well, I get to go over to your house. We talk every day. 
in his mind, he turned it into something more. And then maybe when they made it clear, it's not anything more than that. We're just friends. That's when one thing leads to another. It's just, it's, it's interesting to have his perspective on this. And that's why I mentioned that, that, that gap in the time of the murders, because usually when you hear of somebody committing these kind of crimes, there may be other victims. There's so there's such a long period of time. So I also asked if he thought that Flotus committed any other crimes since there was that six-year gap between the, the murders. And this is why he believed that there wasn't. I don't think so. I don't think he killed other people uh, in between. I think the reason why that there is such a long gap in between was potentially that he was engaging in behaviors that might be considered stalking, right? I think what he was trying to do was really hyper-focus in on one of these two, right? Because I, I think the first victim he knew back in high school, and then there's like a six-year gap or something like that between the second victim. So I think after the first victim, he probably spent a lot of time just trying to get to know, trying to get in the good graces of the second victim. Took a little while, right? I don't view him as potentially being one of these guys who knows how to talk to women, knows really how to talk to anybody, can really have a conversation. I wouldn't be surprised if people described him as awkward or weird when interacting with him. It's just it, it takes him a long time. And so in, in his mind, he then has to fantasize about what these relationships would look like. And that would take a long time before he would actually feel comfortable enough to engage with the person. That is also very interesting, his take on on the time gap there, because what he's saying, I, I, what I'm taking away from that is the fact that he's like he's not someone who has this he's going to kill someone. He doesn't have this this nature about him, this compelling need to... It's not like that. It's not like he's a spree killer and is going out and committed one and then a few months later he has the itch to do it again. It seems like he had these relationships, something didn't go right, didn't go to what he was expecting it to turn into, and that's what made him make that switch in his head. It, I almost felt like he said that the whole stalker vibe, it was almost like a grooming situation. Maybe he was trying to groom them to be his girlfriend or more of an intimate relationship. And it, when it didn't go that way, I don't know if it was that rejection that caused him to turn violent. Right, exactly. It would be it'd be interesting to just get into Florida's head and just figure out what he was actually thinking before he committed these acts. And I always, I love when we have Dr. Delatory on because he gives that perspective of, oh, well, I wouldn't be surprised if he was awkward in conversation, if he was someone who just came across a little weird. It's just, it's just interesting to see how he can see a person and interact with them and try and analyze from there. There are different quirks and things about them. It tells a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, it, you see things in these cases in a different way. That's why a lot of times I like to speak with defense attorneys because they get you to look at a, a case from a different perspective and not just the obvious. And so, yeah, I always love having Dr. John on the show to kind of help us dive a little deeper into the mindset of someone who's committed these crimes. Absolutely. And, you know, with, with this case, there was kind of an unexpected plea there. Yeah, so we knew this was going to be a death penalty case that was going to be tried by a special prosecutor, not someone from the DA's office. So we were prepared for a trial later this year, and then we get the call that, hey, there's a plea in this case we weren't expecting. The families are here, so we're going to take the plea, and we're going to do sentencing and victim impact statement. So it was kind of like hurry to the courthouse to make sure we get this. And when I get there, 
It was packed in the courtroom. There was Texas Rangers investigators that had been on the case in, in the courtroom. Families for both Heather family and Esmeralda's families were both in the courtroom. And then you see Flores. He's in cuffs. He's, you know, and he, of course he's been in jail this entire time since he was arrested. And he had to plead guilty to the charges in order to take this plea deal. He couldn't plead no contest. Sometimes you you get the option to take, you know, say no contest. But as part of the plea deal and to lessen the charges to murder from capital murder, he had to plead guilty, which he did. You know, that is shocking because you a lot of times I feel like when someone like pleads guilty, maybe they have a guilty conscience and that's why they want to do it. I think in this case, he just didn't want to face death. It, it was as simple as that for him. He was like, okay, well, this is going to be my easiest way out of it. So it's just, it's very interesting that it was so specific. He couldn't say, fine, whatever you guys want to do. Like, I have to admit that I'm guilty with this. Yeah. It, at first he did plead no contest and they're like, no, no, no. We got to, let's do this again because as part of this deal, you had to plead guilty, which one, I don't know if he understood what he had to do or he really just didn't want to take responsibility for what he did. Right. He doesn't seem like that kind of person after committing both of these crimes so far apart for people who actually trusted him, that he's going to be the one to say, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll own up to what I did to another person. Yeah. So he did get a life sentence for each charge, which was two murder charges and then the one charge of arson. So those will be served concurrently. Two of the charges will be served concurrently. So together. And then the third is consecutively. So even if he's alive after serving that first one, he still has another one stacked on top of it. So he will spend the rest of his life in jail because it was a plea deal. He can't appeal. Okay. You had mentioned everyone was packed into that courtroom, all of the law enforcement, but also family members. And you mentioned hearing those victim impact statements too. This is probably one of the hardest parts of trials for me, at least personally, because you just see the pain and the anguish these families are going through. And this was one of the first times I like I was holding back tears because it you just felt every inch of the pain these families were going through. Marianne Wilms was Heather's stepmother, and she had some very powerful um, statements. And this is um, what she said during her victim impact statement. The most disturbing part of Heather's murder is that this brutal murder was not committed by a stranger. Joe Flores was not only her friend, but someone she thought of as a big brother. Joe came to our house. He ate our food. Watch 
ever gray. Heather <laughs> watches over all of us every day is our guardian angel. Today is our opportunity to bring her justice. Although we will not carry his casket, all of us as Heather's community are watching as Joe Flores pleads guilty to her murder. He will live out his life in prison, and we will carry heaven in our hearts forever. I remember when you mentioned this case initially when we were talking about this season, and when you said that he was one of her pallbearers. I don't know how he could live with himself and look at that family as they're grieving and pretend to grieve with them. Yeah, I was, I had no idea about that detail of the case. I had heard he knew them and that they were possibly friends, but not to that extent where the family asked him to be her pallbearer. Like he carried her casket. The casket of the woman he had murdered. Brutally murdered. And I just literally, my mouth dropped in court. Like I was stunned that he could still stand there and he had no reaction while she was there telling him this like he just stood there um for me that just shows someone who's extremely detached from what reality actually is um it doesn't make any sense yeah i i don't know i mean he was mentally competent enough to stand trial. So I know they did the evaluations, but something still has to not be clicking for him just to not have any emotion. Right. I just, if he had any conscience whatsoever, he would have said, no, I can't be her pallbearer. And it would have made up some other, it's going to be too hard for me that day. But he, he carried her, the woman that he had killed. And then Heather's um, mother, Donna, also um, spoke, and here was some of her victim impact statement. Evil to my daughter, my angel, pure evil. Joe, you are the poster child of evil. You deserve nothing less than to suffer for eternity. That fact is the reason I am writing this, knowing you will suffer every day of your life the way I suffer every day of my life. Today I forgive you, as hard as that is to say, and it makes me sick. I take my life back from your evil grip. I give myself, my emotions, my thoughts, I give all of it to God. As I move forward in my life knowing Heather is alive, healthy, and happy in heaven. For her to say, today I forgive you, that is a strong person to forgive the person who took your daughter away from you to say, you're not going to have any further hold on my life. Like you have for since the day you took her away from us. That's uh, that's, I hope he had some reaction to that. No, he still just stood there. And so when you see these victim impact statement, we do have the video of him as well in, in court and you'll see him like he'll, You'll see it on the website when we when we post this podcast. Nothing. Just standing there. And it's just, you get angry. And I can imagine the families getting angry and, and 
all over again. Having to relive this again in a courtroom setting. Thankfully, it didn't go to trial because it would have been two trials. It would have been Esmeralda's trial first and then Heather's trial. So that's two times these families would have had to sit in court for this. So in a way, it was kind of good because they don't have to relive this in that setting. See the images because there would have been images. There would have been autopsy report photos to see. Um, But the Herrera family was there as well. And um, they didn't necessarily stand up there and say something to her person. They had written a letter and the victim advocate um, read it to him. And basically, in a nutshell, they just wished him suffering in prison for the rest of his life. Yeah, we, we were talking about this before we started recording, the life sentence versus the death penalty and and what families want after something like this. And I think it is something that should be taken into account. I have mixed feelings thinking about it too, but it, it just, if that's what they wanted, you know, they wanted him to spend the rest of his life in prison and you know it's not going to be a happy life. Yeah, and I don't know for sure if this is something that they necessarily wanted, if they did want the death penalty in this case or not, or it was just... Let's just kind of just take this plea deal and not have to deal with it. You know, he's still going to, he's not going to be free man. Um, so I don't know when specifically what each side of the families wanted. But yeah, they were just like, you know what? Suffer in jail. So where is, where is Jose Flores now? He is now serving that life sentence in Beeville at the Garza West unit. We did reach out to see if he was interested in talking, but I haven't heard back as he, if he's accepted that interview. Of course, if he does, we'll go do that interview and we could bring you that interview in a later podcast. But as of right now, I haven't heard back, so I'm not sure if he's contemplating it or just didn't respond. Right. I imagine a lot of times those requests kind of go unanswered. Um, I was still very, very surprised when you got that interview on, on death row, too. It's just I'm surprised when people actually do end up wanting to. Yeah, because more often than not, I get denied requests left and right. (laughs) The guy from CDJ is probably like, they're just going to tell you no, Erica. But like, just admit, yes. But every once and again, you're surprised. Somebody wants to tell their story or don't believe they're, you know, they believe in their heads, they're wrongfully accused. But we're always here to listen if they ever want to tell their story. And obviously we're here if he does later accept that interview. We have one more episode left in season four that comes out next week. We hope you join us on Tuesday for South Texas Crime Stories.